This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Previously on Election Rewind. Terrorism is one of the greatest dangers we face in this new global era. I'm running because I want our party to match a conservative mind with a compassionate heart. Thank you for the biggest victory in the history of the contested caucuses here in Iowa. 24 years ago, I was uh, apprehended in Kennebunkport, Maine for a DUI. And officials are not ruling out military action this time against whoever's to blame for the attack on the coal. The networks called this thing awfully early, but the people actually counting the votes are coming up with a little different perspective. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. I looked up at, at Secretary Baker and I said, means it's over. We won. Episode 8, Epilogue. Thank you all. Chief Justice Rehnquist, President Carter, President Bush... President Clinton, distinguished guests and my fellow citizens. The peaceful transfer of authority is rare in history, yet common in our country. With a simple oath, we affirm old traditions and make new beginnings. As I begin, I thank President Clinton for his service to our nation. And I thank Vice President Gore for a contest conducted with spirit and ended with grace. Now, what I remember most, it was freezing and raining. <laughs> it was a cold, dreary day. Former press secretary for President Bush, Ari Fleischer. And um, like a lot of inaugural speeches, they're big on high themes. The biggest theme for George W. Bush was u- unity that he is a uniter, not a divider, at a very divisive time in American politics. Uh, It was post-Clinton impeachment. There was still the scandal of what President Clinton did in the Oval Office with Monica Lewinsky. And George Bush, who came out of Texas, where he worked so well with the Democratic Lieutenant Governor, Bob Bullock, a legendary Democrat in Texas who endorsed George W. Bush. Bush proved to be a uniter, not a divider in Texas. He earnestly wanted to be a uniter, not a divider in Washington. And that was the theme that he pushed in his inaugural. Through much of the last century, America's faith in freedom and democracy was a rock in a raging sea. Now it is a seed upon the wind, taking root in many nations. Our democratic faith is more than the creed of our country. It is the inborn hope of our humanity, an ideal we carry but do not own, a trust we bear and pass along. 
And even after nearly 225 years, we have a long way yet to travel. You know, I think the country was pretty divided, as you would expect, after that kind of a contentious uh, electoral outcome. Co-founder and CEO of The Dispatch, Steve Hayes. You know, obviously, Al Gore gave a concession speech, and you had some senior Democrats who had encouraged rank-and-file Democrats and activists to move forward, let the country heal, bring the country back together. But you certainly had pockets of Democrats who thought the election was stolen. Um, and, and some of those pockets included prominent, pretty prominent Democrats. Uh, so, so this was a, a, a very contentious period. And I think George W. Bush came in with the idea that he could be a, a uniter, not a divider, something of a healer, that he could bring people together. I ask you to seek a common good beyond your comfort to defend needed reforms against easy attacks, to serve your nation beginning with your neighbor. I ask you to be citizens, citizens not spectators, citizens not subjects, responsible citizens building communities of service and a nation of character. Other than some minor mischief when we got to the White House where they took the W's off the keyboard and some younger staffers did some uh, minor damage. It was very professional. They had their teams of liaison people from the different agencies work with our teams. And we had a very professional, serious, well done transition. And we had the advantage of Andy Card, who was the incoming chief of staff, who was a former deputy chief of staff. So Andy really knew the insides of the White House. But I'll tell you, for somebody who had basically never been to the White House before, other than maybe as a tourist, as a congressional aide who once got to sit in the lobby. It was awe-inspiring. The notion that you can cross that fence, cross that gate, that's your office, that you'll be working, in my case, 30 feet from the front door of the Oval Office. It, it was this unbelievable sense of joy and anxiety, and, and I couldn't wait to get there. Everything just flows into one. And you really look at yourself and say, I get to work in the White House. I mean, it really was a remarkable feeling. Well, President Bush was far from well-received um, at that time. There were a lot of supporters of former Vice President Al Gore, who obviously thought that he should have been given the election. Host of Fox Report Weekend. John Scott. He conceded, and I think that that went a long way toward healing the country. But there were a lot of people back then who who just felt like um, George W. Bush was an illegitimate president, and I don't think that he enjoyed their support at all in the early months of his administration. Good evening. I appreciate you giving me a few minutes of your time tonight so I can discuss with you a complex and difficult issue an issue that is one of the most profound of our time. The issue of research involving stem cells derived from human embryos is increasingly the subject of a national debate and dinner table discussions. So given the controversy over the election, given the controversy over the Florida recount, certainly there was some skepticism about George W. Bush taking office. Senior advisor to John Kerry, Marianne Marsh. The fact that he was basically awarded the presidency based on a Supreme Court decision um, was met with skepticism by many. 
Uh, and it was such a close vote in Florida. The recount was a ma- was nasty, hard fought. And then to end with the Supreme Court deciding that George W. Bush would be the president was certainly met with, with skepticism and some hostility. The country was very, very, very divided. This whole thing, which I find so pernicious, this red state versus blue state thing, this all comes out of essentially the Florida recount and um, George W. Bush's election. Co-founder of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. It used to be that the color on the map that went was had more to do with like whether it was the incumbent party versus the challenger party or something like that. And then because of Paul Begala writing in USA Today and a handful of other people talking about, look at all the red states on that map and started, uh, you know, uh, defecating from a great height on flyover America. Um, uh, there was this, that was the beginning of the vocabulary of a lot of this cultural war stuff being translated into red state versus blue state. And, you know, just as, a, as, an, as the son of an anti-communist and someone who grew up in sort of Cold War conservatism, the idea that the conservatives are the ones from the red states still bothers me. Reds are commies, um, but that ship has sailed. So the country was very divided. Um, there was this ancient form of argument that uh, comes up whenever this happens about how George W. Bush hadn't won the majority of the popular vote. Uh, we've heard a lot of that in recent years because it happened again, you know, with, with Donald Trump. Um, and there was a lot of bitterness about the campaign. And George W. Bush, one of the first things he did, to his credit, was. Um, decide that he was going to try to govern as as what he called himself during the campaign, a uniter, not a divider. It's a budget that um, recognizes there are some good programs here in Washington that need to be funded. For example, the budget provides a $21 million increase for food safety programs, billion dollar increase for Pell Grants for low-income students, $350 million incre- uh, increase for um, child care, we help ch- children whose parents are in prison with a $67 million mentoring program. Uh, it eliminates thousands of one-time earmark projects. Washington's known for pork. This budget funds our needs without the fat. I think he was, he came in focused on um, a domestic policy agenda. He portrayed himself and saw himself as a different kind of conservative. He called himself a compassionate conservative. And I think he was looking to to take um, what people had thought of as ideological or movement conservatism and uh, blend it together with um, an approach to the world, an approach to governance that took into account uh, people sort of at all levels of society. The biggest thing he wanted to accomplish in his first year was economic growth and insurance policy, as he put it, against a recession because in the summer of 2000, after a long period of economic growth, the economy started to weaken and by January of 2001, it was clear we were already in a recession. And he viewed the tax cuts as an insurance policy against a recession, especially a deep recession. George Bush set out to uh, 
pitch himself as a different kind of conservative. So he talked about things like the ownership society. He talked about um, education and the soft bigotry of low expectations, which was a, a line that his speechwriter Mike Gerson uh, penned and was a, a memorable line. This is an important moment for my administration because I spent such, such amount of, a long amount of time campaigning on education reform. It's been the hallmark of my time as governor of Texas. My focus will be on making sure every child is educated as the president of the United States as well. Both parties have been talking about education reform for quite a while. It's time to come together to get it done so that we can truthfully say in America, no child will be left behind. Education reform was close to his heart. He really looked at that the way governors look at education and say, this is a vital matter to the future of our country. And for George Bush, he really wanted to reduce the gap between uh, particularly minority children and white kids, where white kids were testing better than minority kids. White kids seemed to be doing better in school. And he thought it was as vital to our nation's future that we help minority children especially to do well in school. Well, education was, was a big part of what he was hoping to do. Obviously, his wife, the first lady, had been a teacher and a librarian. Um, education was very important to both of them. And I think that they were, you know, they came into office at a time of peace and, and relative prosperity. And I think that they were trying to steer the, um, the nation's agenda in that direction. The surplus for the first four months was 72 billion. That's significantly higher than the first four months of last year. It tells me that the American people are overtaxed. That's what that says. He was trying to to, to offer um, legislation and, and, and efforts that would give the American people confidence in him. It was like he was politically trying to reach out to different segments of the American population so they would have more trust in him and believe that he could do the job. I think that was one of the one of the very clear things that he did. And then the tax cut was keeping a campaign promise to his supporters. So while he's trying to expand his base of support and, and confidence in his presidency, he was certainly taking care of the people who helped get him there. Tax relief is a great achievement for the American people. Tax relief is the first achievement produced by the new tone in Washington. And it was produced in record time. If you think about the Bush uh, approach to the, the beginning of the year, there was this emphasis on domestic policy. There was this emphasis on um, on education, on ownership society. And there was there had been talk both before the election in articles in prominent international affairs journals and whatnot uh, of a more humble, um, restrained foreign policy approach. And on the morning of September 11th, I was actually getting ready to go cover uh, an education hearing uh, with Laura Bush uh, on Capitol Hill. And uh, I was uh, getting ready to um, 
to head to Capitol Hill, had the TV on. Yeah, there's this guy over at the Newsweek. He wrote a book all about, we were talking about it yesterday, the Supreme Court vote on uh, who would win ultimately the uh, U.S. presidency. We've got the author with us, also Annabelle Vered from TV Guide. It's going to be talking about uh, the very latest TV shows for the fall, including a review of that Emerald show that uh, Dan Tanner was just here schmoozing. I was watching Fox and Friends, true story. But I was watching Fox and Friends, and there was a Newsweek writer, I believe, who had just come out with a new book the, which about the Florida recount, which had this, he had some new tidbit about how the liberal justices had almost persuaded one of the conservative justices to switch their vote, yada, 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 this was a big deal. The purpose of the title is to explain that this was a tied election with a whole series of accidents that could have tipped either way. As I explained at the beginning of the book, if Al Gore had been elected, I would have called the book The Accidental President. So it's not meant as, as, as a slight at, at President Bush. There are any number of slights, perhaps, in the book. But <laughs> if you want to slight anyone, it would be Ducey, because he's been mocking you since you came out here. You must well, stop it. It was a most beautiful fall day as we departed our hotel that morning for a routine education stop. Uh, the purpose of the visit was to visit with a schoolroom of minority kids. It was a, almost all African-American school. And these kids read beautifully. And the president wanted to showcase that, showcase success, praise the students, praise their parents, praise the school teachers and the principals of the school who have put in place this great reading program for these kids. These kids had a bright future and he wanted to shine a spotlight on it because it was an academic education success. So he went there to read. He went there to let the kids read to him and to read to them. In those days, um, I began anchoring on Fox News Channel at 9 a.m. Eastern time. So I would typically go to the studio about quarter till. Um, there'd be a moment when I would appear on the Fox and Friends program and talk about what was coming up on the show. And then I'd just be in the studio until then. So I was literally walking into what we called Studio E back then. I was already mic'd up with a, with a portable microphone and a portable audio pack that allows the control room to talk to me through what's called an IFB, the earpiece that, that fits in my ear. I was opening the studio door and my producer at the time, a guy named Steve, got in my ear with a, a, an extreme sense of urgency. He says, John Scott, get to the studio now. As we got out of the motorcade, I got a page telling me, this is in the old days when we had pagers, that a airplane has flown into the World Trade Center. Welcome back to Fox News. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's believed a 737 has crashed into this speculation at this point, but at least three floors taken out, crashed into the side of the building. Joining us right now, uh, one of the producers with Fox Report, Owen Mugan on the scene. Owen, what do you know? What do you see? Where are you? Yeah, Brian, I'm on the roof of my building, which is about five blocks to the south of the World Trade Center. I'm looking, I'm looking right now at the World Trade Center. There's a massive gaping hole uh, on the second tower. It's about uh, about 15 stories from the roof. Uh, it's it's just unbelievable to look at. There's a right. massive hole. There, in, it, it looks like something out of a movie. There is a huge well, hole in the side of tower number one. We were watching the North Tower courtesy of one of the news helicopters that was up in the air and was broadcasting live. And he was circling around the um, World Trade Center in a counterclockwise direction. So you could see the smoking hole 
in the North Tower. And as he circled, I was actually on air talking to a, uh, a former National Transportation Safety Board investigator, a guy who had investigated many, many aircraft accidents. And I was asking him how it could be that on such a bright, clear, beautiful day, that a pilot could have made such a terrible mistake. And he said, oh, pilots have made mistakes before. And he was telling me about, you know, misprogramming their computers or possibly being blinded by the sun and how that could have resulted in this terrible accident. And as he was speaking, the smoke tower is growing. Uh, there is uh, quite a bit of flame inside the building. Uh, the two towers are um, home, at least during the day, to upwards of 50,000 workers. Yes, you know, I understand 220 that. floors. Right. Um, I am reminded of a couple of things that happened recently, Dr. Gross. Not long ago, uh, just a couple of, within the last couple of weeks, in fact, uh, there was a pilot who flew. There was another one. We just saw... We just saw another one. We just saw another one apparently go. Another plane just flew into the second tower. This raises, this has to be deliberate, folks. The scene is absolutely a horrific one. You have people streaming out of the area. You've got people literally in tears and shock. People that just worked in the nearby buildings that cannot believe what has happened. Still many of them remember the uh, terrorist attack years ago on the World Trade Center. And for many of them, this is just an ugly reminder of that, although the details of what happened here are not certain. I, um, unfortunately, We'll be going back to Washington after my remarks. Secretary Rod Pace and Lieutenant Governor will take the podium and discuss education. I do want to thank the folks here at, uh, at the Booker Elementary School for their hospitality. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. And then we heard that a bomb had gone off at the Pentagon, and it just seemed like the world was falling. Nobody realized at that point that it was another aircraft used as a flying bomb. There is smoke just across the river from the White House, not that far. And as you know, in the last few minutes, there are reports that the Pentagon has been evacuated and the White House is being evacuated. Clearly, you're seeing now these pictures from Washington, D.C. as we try to determine exactly what has happened there. But there was an early report of a plane perhaps going down in that area. Uh, I can't tell you how large the smoke plumes are coming from the Pentagon. Uh, it Folks, is, it, Jim, it let is, me interrupt is. you. Uh, we are looking at live pictures of the World Trade Center literally starting to crumble. It is, it is falling apart as, uh, as we watch these pictures live. The World Trade Center, 110 stories, literally starting to fall. I wanted to tell you, John, that I'm in front of the Capitol, and a moment ago, police officers ran up to us and ordered us off of the grounds and told us, and I quote, there is a plane that has been hijacked. It is 20 minutes south of Washington. This was about 10 minutes ago and is headed this way. I was trying to get through to my wife, who was being evacuated from the Department of Justice, because in Washington at the time, it's hard to explain all the chaos, but they scrambled jets over Washington, D.C., and the sonic booms or near sonic booms were being mistaken for explosions. And so people thought there were bombs going off all over the city. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward 
and freedom will be defended. I want to reassure the American people that full, the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help the victims of these attacks. Make no mistake, the United States will hunt down and punish those responsible for these cowardly acts. You know, people almost don't believe this, but the president's demeanor and the demeanor basically of everybody around him was just determination and unemotional. And I think that's the part people don't believe. The thing about being around the president of the United States at a moment where your country is under attack is you don't have time to be emotional. You don't have space to be emotional. You have to deal with decision-making and all the different events that were unfolding. And that's what I saw in George Bush. From George Bush to the military, to the Secret Service, to the top aides around him, there was just a stealiness to everybody. I remember only one person broke down, only one person cried. And every single other person, steely determination and a lack of emotion. And at a time when every American was aghast, staring at the TV, worrying about loved ones, etc. I later looked back and I thought, those emotions weren't flowing through us. They flew through us later, but not on that day, not on that airplane on September 11th. Um, there was a real sense that we had to collect information, which was difficult to do because a lot of the communications broke down on Air Force One that day. So there was frustration with the technology, but we had to collect the information, make decisions, and get America on a war footing, because as President Bush said privately on September 11th, we're at war. I remember reading, I remembered that morning, reading about a plot that Osama bin Laden had put together that the FBI had become aware of. I don't think they foiled it because the plot never really came into existence, but bin Laden was planning to hijack jetliners uh, crossing the Pacific and his goal was to, I think, hijack four airplanes that were westbound from the United States and then four that were eastbound from the Philippines and other Asian countries. He was going to hijack them and blow them up in the middle of the ocean. And the idea was that the, um, the aircraft would never be found and you'd never sort of really know what happened. So again, the FBI became aware of that plot and it had it had been several years before, but um, sometime between the first World Trade Center attack in 93 and the attacks of 2001, he had wanted to get that off the ground. And I knew about it. I had studied. So when I saw these two aircraft hit the World Trade Center, I thought it's got to be Osama bin Laden. Just immediately it was apparent what had happened. Um, these were not accidents. This was an attack. Uh, we didn't know who had done it, um, although we, I think we'd, we'd learned that pretty quickly. And it was, a, it was a stirring moment in the nation's history, in the Bush presidency, and it really was this hinge point between 
the way that George W. Bush had thought he was going to be president and the way that George W. Bush would end up being president. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you. Good night. And God bless America. There was this just desire on some people's part to believe, which happens whenever something truly terrible happens, that it was a conspiracy kind of thing. And that stuff was born then. There were, there were some very partisan journalists who gave him a hard time about not going immediately back to the White House and being in a plane. I, I always thought all of that was nonsense. Um, you know, there are protocols that go into effect when the Pentagon has been attacked and when they think that the White House could be attacked and, and all of that. And there was some nitpicking about how long it took to him, for him to visit the site. But again, no one was really paying attention to any of that except for hardcore partisan journalists and partisan activists. On the, for the most part, there really was a rally around the president effect, a profound rally around the president effect. Could you give us a sense as to what kind of prayers you are uh, thinking and where your heart is uh, for yourself? You well, I don't think about myself right now. I think about the families, the children. Um, I'm, a, I'm a loving guy. And I'm also someone, however, who's got a job to do. And I intend to do it. And um, this is a terrible moment. But this country will not relent until we have saved ourselves and others from the terrible tragedy that came upon America. I think he did um, a really amazing job in the day-to-day -day conduct of his office um, in terms of uh, rally, showing compassion for the people who had been attacked, rallying the country out of a sense of um, justice rather than vindictiveness, which is an important, but I think a very interesting distinction because certainly many of us wanted revenge right away. The country, I think, wanted revenge right away. And I think Bush found a way to uh, talk about what he was about to undertake, uh, what he was going to have the military and our intelligence professionals undertake on behalf of the country that allowed those of us who wanted revenge, which again was most everybody, but without communicating uh, to the world that this was what was driving Americans. It was this white hot anger. and Instead, it was a sense of justice. It's hard to remember just how stunning that was and what a shock it was and how the nation hung for days on the hopes that the thousands of people who were missing would somehow be found and be okay. And that was not the case. And so I do give George W. Bush credit for his appearance at Ground Zero, where he rallied the country and said that it reminded everyone that we would be heard. And that was clear that he was going to seek um, retribution for what was done to the United States of America, an attack on our own soil. I, uh, I want you all to know can't go any louder. I want you all to know 
that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... We'll hear all of us soon. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. In those, those early weeks after the attacks, he took a fair amount of grief that I think is not well remembered um, from people who wanted to go right away. Steve Hayes. I mean, we knew it was Al-Qaeda right away. We knew they were given safe harbor in Afghanistan. We knew that the Taliban had had uh, taken moves in Afghanistan on the ground to uh, provide safe haven for Al-Qaeda, uh, to strike out against um, the rivals to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda um, on the ground there. So there was a lot of momentum uh, and some urgency to strike back right away. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. Obviously, um, he had something thrust at him that uh, he was never expecting, and most, most presidents experience that. John Scott. Just some world event that completely changes the trajectory of that particular presidency. In his case, it was the 9-11 attacks. He was no longer an education president. He was a wartime president. And, you know, after the many, many warnings to the Taliban to give up, give up bin Laden, um, obviously we invaded Afghanistan. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. Other close friends, including Canada, 
Australia, Germany and France have pledged forces as the operation unfolds. More than 40 countries in the Middle East, Africa, Europe and across Asia have granted air transit or landing rights. Many more have shared intelligence. We are supported by the collective will of the world. As George Bush ran on a platform of shrinking the, shrinking the size of the military, having a lighter military, a more lethal military that can move faster, but is smaller and lighter. It's more special forces warfare, if you will. Ari Fleischer. And that was because the Cold War was over. The Berlin Wall had fallen down. Russia was a shell of itself. It really wasn't much of a military threat at that point. And so you could think differently about the military, which is what George Bush promised as a candidate. What was interesting was the plans that he had for the military about being lighter and more lethal were very much what we did in Afghanistan. It was really a special forces war. It was not a war where we had to send in hundreds of thousands of land forces to have tank battles against a foreign enemy. In fact, the first military missions in Afghanistan involved the Northern Alliance, the local anti-Taliban, anti-Al-Qaeda locals in Afghanistan who aligned with us, who were aided by our special forces officers and men, along with CIA officers on horseback. If you talk to those guys who had only one of the 12 had experience on horseback at all, and they went into Afghanistan on horseback to meet a warlord and, you know, try to cobble together resistance to the to the Taliban, which they did very, very effectively. Twelve guys on horseback were capturing Taliban leaders and calling in airstrikes and just doing tremendous work. And, and you know, they're, they're the, the monument to them is uh, standing at, at ground zero. Despite a major shift in power overnight, the Afghan capital of Kabul appears to be a normal city. There were crowds of people out on the streets throughout the afternoon buying and selling, a lot of traffic in the streets, cars driving by, and music, something that hasn't been heard in some time here while the Taliban was in control. A cable radio now up and on the air and playing music. Seems to be an extraordinarily festive mood here. Uh, people smiling broadly, hugging each other, honking their horns. Uh, people on bicycle ringing their bells. People obviously happy about the change so far. There were few questions and few doubts. However, it seemed politically impossible to oppose him. Marianne Marsh. Even though it was the wrong thing to do, and I certainly know members of Congress at the time who wanted to vote against it and were publicly, you know, very public about it, vocal about it. The opposition to them, even Democrats who did not want to vote for it, ended up voting for it. For years after the invasion of Afghanistan, the Democrats and liberal, a lot of liberal journalists, they would hold up the Afghanistan war as the good war. Jonah Goldberg. They would say that, look, we always we all supported the Afghan war. Al Gore would have definitely done the Afghan part of it. He just wouldn't have done Iraq. It was, it was sort of like a mini World War II. It was the war that everybody is allowed to support. And it was a unifying thing for a while. It was basically portrayed in a way that it was un-American to oppose it that you would, your patriotism would be called into question. And there would be a political price to pay if you did, 
even in the bluest parts of the country, in the most progressive um, corners of America, um, th there was there were reservations. There were always a a, a stripe of Americans who opposed it from the day one, and you know what? They were right. For the past two months, in speeches, cabinet meetings, in the media, the president and vice president have argued their case for a regime change in Iraq. The overall theme, Saddam Hussein has a history of violence and the means to commit more. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt that he is amassing them to use against our friends, against our allies, and against us. From ineffective UN inspections to Baghdad's continuing efforts to develop chemical and biological warfare, the administration says the ruthless Iraqi dictator threatens not only the United States, but the world. Armed with an arsenal of these weapons of terror, sitting atop 10% of the world's oil reserves, Saddam Hussein could then be expected to seek domination of the entire Middle East, to take control of a great portion of the world's energy supplies, and to directly threaten America's friends throughout the region and subject the United States or any other nation to nuclear blackmail. It was conventional wisdom among Democrats and Republicans, among conservatives and liberals, among the bulk of the intelligence community in the United States and abroad and at the UN that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that, uh, that he had chemical weapons, this was not considered to be a politicized understanding. There are speeches by Bill Clinton to this effect. Um, there was a widespread belief that he was pursuing, that he had a nuclear program, was pursuing, wanted a nuclear program, wanted a nuclear bomb or an atomic bomb. And, um, and there was an, a, a sense that, which George W. Bush was never going to say because his dad was his dad, but that George H.W. Bush should have pressed on into Baghdad and taken Saddam Hussein out at the end of the first Gulf War. I think as far as President Bush was concerned, and I was Bush's spokesperson, his first focus was Afghanistan. I think his focus started to shift throughout 2002, certainly into the summer and fall of 2002, about what, if anything, to do about Saddam. Now, I think there were other people in the administration who always wanted to get Saddam. And Bush held them back and said, no, that's not what we're doing now. We're focusing on the people who attacked us on September 11th, which was not Saddam. But one thing that affected Bush's thinking was that America had already been attacked in a surprise attack. Saddam had nothing to do with that September 11th surprise attack. But George Bush was not going to take a chance that we could ever get hit by another, an additional surprise attack. And when he was told that Saddam, in unequivocal terms, has biological and chemical weapons stockpiles, he had to make a very hard decision. We know that Saddam Hussein pursued weapons of mass murder even when inspectors were in his country. Are we to assume that he stopped when they left? The history, the logic, and the facts lead to one conclusion. Saddam Hussein's regime is a grave and gathering danger. The reason why everyone settled on weapons of mass destruction as the rationale for the war was that it was the one thing everybody could agree upon. And, um, uh, and, and sort of in a bureaucratic way. 
There are other people who said we need to do this because we've we've declared the Bush doctrine of either with us or you're against us. Saddam Hussein cheered the 9-11 attacks. Saddam Hussein paid for suicide bombers in various places. Saddam Hussein was a major sponsor of terror. He refused to renounce it. And our kid gloves are off and we're going to take this stuff deadly seriously now. And he is he is standing against us. And then there was the argument about unfinished business from the Iraq war. Um, and there were a, a bunch of sort of smaller scale arguments as well. And the one thing everybody could sort of latch onto was this weapons of mass destruction argument. And it kind of won the day. The problem was, is that if you, te- if you reduce your argument to go into war to one thing, and the one thing doesn't quite pan out exactly as you want, people get very angry, and I think understandably so. The president, I think, felt at the time that, that Saddam Hussein was a threat to the United States and was going to continue to cause trouble. And I, I do believe that, you know, the, the information, the intelligence that they had, Saddam Hussein wanted to act tough. He wanted to act like he had nuclear or biologic, well, he did have biological weapons, but he wanted to act like he had nuclear weapons and he was willing to use them because he thought that that protected him. And I think he thought the, that the United States would never uh, try to depose him. All the decades of deceit and cruelty have now reached an end. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict commenced at a time of our choosing. For their own safety, all foreign nationals, including journalists and inspectors, should leave Iraq immediately. On March 17th, 2003, I very much believed that uh, war was imminent. I was on a flight to Kuwait City, um, flew through, I think, Heathrow, and uh, my flight, uh, huge, huge uh, passenger jet from London into Kuwait City. I think there were like four of us on the flight going into to Kuwait City that day. Everybody was obviously going the other direction. We landed at the airport. It was my colleague, Matt Labash, and I from the Weekly Standard and walked into the airport and there were riots is probably too strong a word, but there were throngs of Kuwaitis um, begging and pleading with the folks manning the, uh, the gates and the ticket counters for any airline and people were asking for tickets to anywhere. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense. Ambassador Bremer, thank you for your steadfast belief in freedom and peace. I want to thank the uh, 
members of the governing council who are here, please you're joining us for uh, one of our nation's great holidays, a chance to give thanks to the Almighty for the many blessings we received. Particularly proud to be with the 1st Armored Division, the 2nd ACR, and the 82nd Airborne. Once we launched, once we did this, we must complete what we started. And that means not leaving the Iraqi people behind, not abandoning our friends and allies who are on our side in Iraq. And it certainly doesn't mean abandoning the military who fought that war and that we're just now gonna let them, in essence, be defeated. He always knew that he would prevail and America would prevail and that's what led him to the surge where we did prevail. But I don't think he ever stopped to think or worry about the political ramifications. Frankly, the smartest political ramification would have been to leave Saddam there and have a tough posture against Saddam and not take the chance going to war. Yesterday, December the 13th, at around 8.30 p.m. Baghdad time, United States military forces captured Saddam Hussein alive. He was found near a farmhouse outside the city of Tikrit in a swift raid conducted without casualties. And now the former dictator of Iraq will face the justice he denied to millions. The capture of this man was crucial to the rise of a free Iraq. It marks the end of the road for him and for all who bullied and killed in his name. I think the Republican Party and the Republican caucus was, was very united behind President Bush um, in 2004. Um, the fact that we had already invaded Iraq for the second time was starting to give people pause. And I think that, um, you know, initially the public was behind the Iraq invasion um, substantially. But as time went on, that that support ebbed as well as it as it usually does, you know, in, in any kind of a in any kind of a protracted war. They are vigilant and they have resolved. U.S. Marines have entered the volatile city of Fallujah. These are the first pictures since the operation got underway. Out of camera range, Marines have come under fire from automatic weapons as well as rocket-propelled grenades. Troops armed with photographs of Iraqis wanted in connection with the killing and mutilation of four Americans have taken a number of people into custody. Iraqi fighters remain undeterred. We are not terrorists, as Bush said. We are Mujahideen, fighters for the cause of God. With the, the strong anti-war uh, types, the strong anti-war arguments that you heard most prominently from Howard Dean, who was governor uh, of Vermont at, at the time and sort of owned the, the anti-war arguments and tried to really channel the anti-war sentiment. The reason I said no to the Iraq war is, look, I supported the first Gulf War. I supported the, um, the uh, war in Afghanistan because our people were attacked and we owe have a right to defend ourselves. I didn't support this war because I thought the facts the president presented to the country were inaccurate. And it turned out what he told the country wasn't true. While the Democratic Party was still split from 2000 to 2004 um, about the war, Democratic primary voters had turned very anti-war very quickly, very anti-Bush, very anti-war. And they were shouting blood for oil and all these kinds of things. 
Dean had already established himself as sort of friendly on cultural issues with his sort of, at the time it was civil unions, not gay marriage. But really he got a lot of attention because he was full-throatedly anti-push, anti-war, and he rose up through the ranks of the primaries and um, got an enormous amount of attention. For over a year, he was the front runner. And, um, uh, and I thought he was just, he was an arrogant jerk, but that's just me. When the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed, it came down for two reasons other than internal stuff in the Soviet Union. One is that we have a strong military, and I think a strong military is important. The other is that most people behind the Iron Curtain wanted to be like us. And today, there are not very many countries after three years of George W. Bush's presidency where people want to be like us anymore. Howard Dean was the long-time frontrunner for many, many, you know, for the better part of that campaign. And John Kerry is not doing well in the race, not raising money, um, flagging in the polls, and he's behind in New Hampshire. And the only chance he has to win the nomination is to come with a surprise upset in Iowa. I want a jobs creation tax credit here in the United States. I want a manufacturing jobs credit. And I want a tax benefit for those companies that could take their jobs overseas, but instead they decide to stay here and do the patriotic thing and try to grow the jobs right here in America. We should give those companies the reward of a lower tax rate. If you go back to the beginning of the 2004 campaign, Howard Dean gave Democrats something that I think they eventually would agree they all would have preferred as sort of the big fight over um, the Iraq war, which is a clear line. Democrats oppose the Iraq war, Republicans favor the Iraq war. Candidates like like John Kerry, uh, the eventual nominee, didn't give Democrats that clear argument. I certainly admire the president for standing up and deciding that we needed to take on terror. We all believe that. And I thought he gave a great speech to the Congress and the country immediately afterwards. But I think the president has led in a sort of steadily wrong direction, that he's been stubborn in his leadership, not recognizing what you need to do to bring other countries to the table, not recognizing what you need to do to restore America's relationship with allies and friends so that they too are sharing the risks of this war on terror. The argument you heard from everybody in terms of exit polls and all of these things was, um, I think he's the most electable, right? He's not my first choice, but I think he's the most electable, which is to say, I don't like him, but I think somebody else will. And there's nothing wrong with strategic voting, but the, the other part of the problem was, was that John Kerry was not revered by the military community in the United States. We don't have to get into the swift boat things and all that, but he was an anti-war guy from the Vietnam era. He threw away his medals. He then denied that he threw away his medals. And... Um, he was generally seen as sort of a Howard Dean type who happened to have served in the Vietnam War, and he was much more vulnerable than the Democrats could appreciate because they didn't actually understand that being pro-military isn't just having worn the uniform, it's a whole cultural stance that he was utterly incapable of doing. Everybody got a lot of attention in that race, and it's, it's so interesting because people sort of flitted around between Dean 
Kerry and Edwards. But in the end, it was only John Kerry who could get the progressives, put the money together, put the organization together, and really knew how to win a campaign. Standing with us in that fight are those who shared with me the long season of the primary campaign. Carol Mosley Braun, General Wesley Clark, Howard Dean, Dick Gebhardt, Bob Graham, Dennis Kucinich, Joe Lieberman, Al Sharpton. To all of you, I say thank you for teaching me and testing me, but mostly we say thank you for standing up for our country and for giving us the unity to move America forward. By serving the ideal of liberty, we're bringing hope to others and that makes America more secure. By serving the ideal of liberty, we're spreading the peace that we all long for. By serving the ideal of liberty, we're serving the deepest ideals of our national soul. Freedom is not America's gift to the world. Freedom is the almighty God's gift to each man and woman in this world. The nation rallied around him after September 11th. They believed in him. They believed in what he was doing. They welcomed his message. He was not only strong and determined, that bullhorn moment where he said, the people who did this will hear from all of us soon, which rallied the country. He also was very visible in public about being mindful of protecting the rights of our Arab American fellow citizens. He was striking all the right chords and doing all the right things in the eyes of 90% of the public for a lengthy period of months after September 11th. So going into 2004, there was still a strong residual of goodwill, and there were many Americans who still believed Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. We hadn't found them yet. And that started to undermine the case, of course, for why we went to war. But by the 2004 election, it still wasn't crystal clear what had happened. It started to become increasingly clear, but it wasn't crystal clear yet. So there was still a large enough pool of Americans who believed that George Bush did protect us, that George Bush would keep us safe. Now we go forward, grateful for our freedom, faithful to our cause, and confident in the future of the greatest nation on earth. May God bless you, and may God continue to bless our great country. Thank you all. Download the complete season of Election Rewind 2000 at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.